a Gemini. I am both German and Gemini. Gemini. It's not a thing. We just it is, it is now. <laughs> right here. He and I. Right here. Right here. Right here. Right now. Uh, all right. Welcome to episode two of the podcast Ethical Rioting. We did it again. We did it again. We have all three of our hosts. We've actually started. We have. I just pressed play or record. There will be editing it. at some point. There will not be editing. There will be no editing. How lazy do you think there, I am? Pretty there, lazy. There will be editing. Absolutely. Anything <laughs> stupid or off color, we can totally edit it out. We won't. We won't do We that could edit. Well. I have the software to edit. I was just expecting Wait, it to be more like a movie. movie. What do you mean? Like when you before the movie starts, you know the light changes and you, you there's anticipation. Or even when you're filming, there's a the, the clapper. The clapper. The clapper. You know, I once had to be a human clapper for a short film I worked on. A human clapper. It was humiliating. Um. So I literally walked up and I was like, humiliating clap. What was the what was the anthropomorphized object in uh, a Paul Simon song? Human trampoline. <laughs> Are you saying that I would be a good human? No, I'm not saying. I'm just. What what was the film project about? Was that part of the script that you walked up? No, no, no. Because the reason they have the clapper is so you can sync up the video and the sound. Okay. It's like a part of post. It helps you. Mm. It's also useful for editing. And for editing, takes and everything. So we didn't have a clapper, but we needed someone to like clap. And as the assistant director, (laughs) that was my job. That was the one and only film I have ever worked on when I discovered that I don't like working on film. Did you have to wear a special outfit? No. Like black and white diagonal stripes? I really wanted to do that. <laughs> really I was wearing a To look like the clapper. <laughs> so we have to be a zebra? And you'd have to get like a t-shirt where you could like rewrite on it, see one. Are you committed to this job or not? <laughs> Clearly not, because I haven't worked on a film since. All of my friends in L.A. are like, you would make so much money and just come out here and work on TV. And I'm like, first of all, they didn't have to live in L.A. Secondly, I don't want to work in TV. Well, you don't have to. That's why you're working in theater. In the trenches in theater. In podcastry. (laughs) Because I've made so much money off of this podcast. I was just going to say, I didn't get to check them last time. (laughs) I mean. Are we having a payroll problem? Like, Do I have to talk to somebody? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Guys, I told you, you're going to get W-2s come 2017. Like, oh. or 18, 20. Be- <laughs> Look, Steve pays his taxes. That's the only thing you guys need to know. Yeah. We established that last I'm, time. I know. Happy to establish that okay, so just as a reminder, I am your founder and host, Katrina. We should go around and announce ourselves so everyone knows who this belongs to. Steve. I'm Steve. I really don't know what else needs to be said. needs to be said. There we go. Let's see if that... I'm Lance. I'm the guy that everybody begrudgingly invites along. That's not true. Lance also has the most prodigious beard of anyone at this table. Oh. Beard in the traditional sense, not in the not like... The- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for talking to him. my wife last night. Why would you see that? And then Matthew. My name is Matthew Nisley, and this is my first time. He's our distinct, distinguished guest. <laughs> it's my first time uh, on a podcast. Esteemed, distinguished guest, my not an extinguished guest. We did not actually have to extinguish. We just coined two words. <laughs> I think you actually said extinguished. <laughs> we are a prolific podcasting group, clearly. We make up words and we accumulate people. I'm convinced I have verbal dyslexia, personally. Wouldn't surprise me. Thanks for that. Yes, Lance? No, I just enjoy the fact that now extinguished is now a word because it makes complete sense. Esteemed and distinguished all rolled into one. I like this. We should, have, we should have lots of extinguished guests. We should. We will. We yeah, have an entire alumni from... You guys! Oh, also, Matthew is a member of the class of 2001. What, what? Did best, you guys see the in the survey that they sent out, 2001? had the most responses in that survey. But, not to be nitpicky here, I feel like that should have been, they they should have figured out the proportion of each class or something. Well, wait, was that the survey that was only sent to, they said 40% of alumni responded, but was that the survey that was only sent to the rural alumni? No, that was the... That was the other one. Yeah, the rural, rural, 
Okay. I've responded to many surveys, and I'm pretty sure IMSA did not want responses, my responses for any of them. Because I'm, you know, work in theater, which is not a STEM-related field. Well, I have lots of questions, technical questions about that. About the questions. Yeah. Like, what do you mean by income? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not familiar with it. (laughs) I just like that they assumed that I was involved in a STEM, like, they just assumed off the bat that I was involved in STEM education, and I'm like, no... And then they asked why I went to IMSA, like what interested me in STEM, and I was like, so I didn't have to live with my mom? <laughs> there have been many, many worse reasons to go to IMSA than that, I'm sure. Prieto was like, oh, you're one of those. And I was like, yeah! You don't put a menopausal woman who's opinionated with a teenager who's opinionated in the same house. I think that's called being a teenager, though, isn't it? Well, not every mom is menopausal when the teenager is going. Well, Didn't used to happen. You used to get pregnant at 20 or younger, and then by the time your kid was a teenager, you would not have hit menopause yet. True enough. But because we've women are now having babies later in life, you can't see it, because. but I'm gesturing, but like are the whole life cycle has moved later. shifting with her hands. Like, if I got pregnant right now, my baby would be hitting the teenage years right when I'm pre-menopausal. Like, there'd be hormones going in all directions, and it would be ugly. Which is usually just called being a teenager. Yeah, but... It's rough being a teenager. It's rough being a teenager, but it's worse when your mother is also going through It's rough being a mother of a teenager. Going through, going through changes, I'm sure. Yeah, one's Which, estrogen is bursting, and the other one is losing her estrogen. Like, you didn't have a menopausal mother? Uh, I, mean, I, I did at some point, yes. <laughs> I, I do have a mother who was at some point in the because my mother is still with us. And right. I guess I this wasn't no, a large I part of no your teenage young, years. So it was not something we, we talked about, honestly. I'm not mm-hmm. sure exactly when my mom went to menopause. Huh. Well, well so, there you go. So far, I feel like we should our, not. our listeners are riveted <laughs> by my discussion with my mother. And that actually segues us wonderfully into our... As, Ex-extinguished. Extinguished guest. Yes. Uh, who has a background in anthropology. The study of people. Right. Wait, but aren't you now getting a PhD in archaeology? Uh, I'm getting a PhD in... My PhD will be in anthropology, but anthropology in the United States is uh, historically a four-subfield discipline. Ooh, so there's is. cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. They tend to study living people or people of the recent past, using historical documents. And how recent is like recent? Like, still alive. Still alive. <laughs> Normally still alive, okay. or, I mean, last the last century or so, okay. you could say. That's historical anthropology, but anyway. And then there's biological anthropology, which does a few different things. So there are folks who study human origins and evolution, uh, and a lot of them are are trained as paleontologists, so um, in some ways more aligned with geology. More gestures, by the way, with his hands. Yeah. So we're going through time. <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> and then also within biological anthropology, um, and sort of a crossover with that cultural is medical anthropology. So you study uh, human illness and how it's understood and treated. Um, and then there's archaeology, which is the study of the past using artifacts. Um, Although more archaeologists are actually starting to work in recent time periods. I myself identify as a historical archaeologist. And then there's linguistics, which is the study of language. And so you can also do that in a couple of different ways. You can either study language as a a system, the symbolic system, but you can also study uh, how language gets used in social settings, how we use language to do things. Which I think is actually the name of a old text. Probably back in the day. Like How are paleontology and archaeology usually split up? Or are they? Um, some of that just has to do, at least in the United States, some of that just has to do with your background and training. Okay. The methods, for the most part, are pretty similar. Okay. Um, but the reason that if you're studying human origins that you might have to know a lot of geology is because 
if you're working with stuff that's old enough, then like archaeologists, most of the time we're digging in, in unconsolidated sediment. So things that you could actually like dig apart with a shovel or something. Sure. Um, but if you're in paleontology, yeah. But, yeah. but really old stuff is actually already on its way or has already become stone. And so in those kinds of situations, you actually have to understand like the, the, the formation of the sequence, but then you need to figure out how to get things out without destroying them. And that's where you actually do the pick. <laughs> so anyways, so in, very few departments have all four of those fields, mm-hmm. subfields. Most will have three, some only have two. And in most cases, when you get a degree in anthropology, <clears throat> well, in most cases, you, you'll study whatever you study with your degrees in anthropology. Mm-hmm. Like a general theater course where like you can study directing you can study sure. acting but a, a lot of theater programs you, you don't graduate with the specialization in stage management you would just get a theater degree and have to tell people you specialize in right. stage management exactly that's sort of how we do yeah oh but i feel like you're i don't want to say more useful to society but possibly <laughs> more respected in society <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> not these days but what were you doing in Tanzania? Uh, what wasn't I doing in Tanzania? Uh, I had malaria. I was say, yeah, you survived. Are you now immune around. to malaria? I and you get it the, again? I went to the beach. Wait, but which ocean? The too, Indian too Ocean? Very different the Indian Ocean. Uh, you, can't, there's, you can't become uh, immune to malaria, but apparently uh, you can... If you have it enough, you can build up a resistance, but it's never complete. Having it enough sounds really scary. Sounds like the worst thing. I was going to say, well, it was my first time, and I have to say, I would never like to. I would, I would prefer to avoid ever getting it again. I mean, how's it different from just a really bad flu or a cold? I mean, well, in my case, um. The the initial symptoms for most people are it's a it alternates between fever and chills. It sounds hilarious. Yeah, and so it, it <clears throat> as the parasite uh, grows and it has sort of a cyclical pattern in your it gets into your blood and um, uh, so you'll have fever for a while and then you'll be in a period where like twenty four hours later you have chills and then a day later fever and that's how most people figure out they have it i didn't have normal symptoms uh i just felt a little dehydrated i had a headache and so by the time that i actually <clears throat> woke up and had any of the typical symptoms of malaria i could barely stand and so i had a very severe case um and i was able to get treated but it was not great but yeah a lot of people so people who get it who had it regularly um, and who have built up some resistance. A lot of times they just end up feeling kind of sore and lethargic and have fever. And things okay. like that. They take the medicine. Wait, but isn't there a vaccine? They're testing one right now. Okay. Which is really cool. But there are anti-malarial. Right. I feel like. And there are anti-malarial pills. Right. But those don't always work. Oh, okay. And you were taking them? Were not given them? Uh, they at were the time that I got malaria, <clears throat> anti-malarials are actually very cheap and ah. very widely accessible. Um, and the pills that you take to prevent it, it's the same medication, just in higher doses that you take to get rid of it. Ah. Um, so the idea behind it is that you want to have a low level in your system to keep mm-hmm. the malaria from, from getting a foothold. They don't have feet. Um, uh, <laughs> the pills don't have feet? No, the malaria. And, and the disease, oh. I hope. Well, that sounds well it's a bad. parasite. Is it like... See, you say parasite, and I immediately think tapeworm. Small ducks. It's <laughs> <laughs> much smaller than that. I believe it's a paramecium. Oh, so it's like in your... Cells. Yeah, it gets in your blood cell, eats everything up inside of it, splits into a bunch of little pieces, into, into its little... Right. I don't know if it just divides. I guess it divides. Bursts the blood cell, and then each one of those goes and infects a new blood cell. Oh. And does it spread through, like, water? Through uh, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. Yeah. And I was not, but to answer your question, I... So it's a bloodborne disease. Yeah. Mosquitoes. I was not taking the pills, but in my defense, I, at the time, just before, I was at high elevation and it was very cold and it was during the dry season. 
Oh, yeah. And so there really wasn't a risk, and so it was fine. And I basically, looking at the timing, I, I got bit probably the, like, the day that I got back to the coast. Right. And that was not. Yeah. I'm sorry that I made you defend getting it to see. <laughs> <laughs> like, how dare, what did you do wrong that yeah. that mosquito beat you? Yeah. In many other circumstances, we would call that victim blaming. Wow. Way to take it to a serious place, Steve. I remember you and I were emailing about something else, and I think you didn't respond, and then I said, well, he's busy doing research, I mean, who knows? You'll so, screw him, too. Yeah, well, a while later, I think it was your brother sent an email out yeah. to yeah, a, bunch of, bunch of, yeah, a bunch of people who was like, so, he has malaria, he's fine, so that was... No, but I did have a very severe case, and that was why we emailed everybody, just because, in case a rumor got out, we didn't want people to be worried. But I got the best treatment I could. Yay! The best treatment It took ages to get over it took like two months to recover, okay. which is also not normal, but I just had a very bad It's like you had mono, but worse. Yeah, although I'm always so tired all the time. Can you have mono for like your whole life? Probably. Is that a thing? I don't know. I think I've never had being, it. Being an academic, I, I was going to say somebody would call you low energy. Yeah, that's what I... Are you low on iron? Maybe you're anemic. I don't know. I, I don't, Where do you get When was the last time you donated blood? They test your iron when you... I can't it. donate blood for a lot of reasons. Oh, right. They right. Don't want my blood. I just <laughs> did the mental math on that. There's that whole traveling to Africa part. Right. <laughs> and that's not even in this That's country. not even the thing. Hmm. Anyway, so in other news. And I have. <laughs> I, I mean, I, they, they've started to, re- to relax certain kinds of laws around donating blood. And, I, and there are people, you know, if you're going back to, uh, uh, to go back to the, the sort of, uh, overarching theme of the podcast there are a lot of people who who talk about uh, whether or not you should donate blood anyway if you Mm. have for example traveled to certain parts of the world or if you're gay or whatever else um and do it anyway as long as you know that you're not a risk because they do they test the the blood no matter what they test the blood no matter what and there are and then also people you know if people are aware of their own of their status for Mm -hmm. various things like hiv and Others, it's not just HIV that they screen for. Yeah, I mean, the Zika virus is—they're super diligent about that these days. So, no, I haven't given blood in a long time. Okay, but I do have a funny story. Once a couple of years ago, I, I did have a blood panel done uh-huh. just because I hadn't had one as an adult really, and so my doctor said, "Well, let's see what's up." And it came back; it was great. And he and he said, "I don't know what you're doing, but keep it up. It, you look fine." And then a couple of years later. He said, when was the last time we did blood work on you? And I said, well, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago. And he's like, let me look it up in the system. And he looks it up. He goes, oh, yeah, your results were great. And I'm going to tell you again, keep it up. And if you keep it up, then we can worry about you dying from something really terrible at a ripe old age. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Thanks. It was, a, it was a very strange. I don't know, but at least your doc has a sense of humor. Yeah. I've definitely had doctors that, like, did He did not. give me the most awkward eye high five I've ever gotten in my life when he found out that I'd gotten a, a research grant. He's an awesome doctor. Like he he actually wanted to see my dissertation proposal. Oh. Yeah. So other than missing or not reciprocating, how is a high five awkward? Well he found out I'd gone into the clinic for some reason and it, it was it Steve, was just Steve and I are trying we're both <laughs> trying to imagine this with our hands come up and You know it was a it was a swing forward over your shoulders kind of high five if that makes sense and it was it was very low energy on both of our parts and we sort of like missed each other and just hit the fingertips and people were watching us it was not one of my prouder moments not one of my prouder high fives um trying to think of the greatest high five I've ever had I know now I'm like where is my scale I don't really keep a scale of high fives I don't like them to sting too much. Like it's good when you have when you have a nice full contact. Right, but you want it to be more like a clap and, and not, not like a, that. Right. You don't want, you want it to be a thin body. No, 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 no. High five is Yeah, not not like a clap. It's like a I don't know if that's gonna come across the microphone or whatever. I mean it will to someone who has studied the art of clapping. Like my previous clap designer, 
Stephanie Pauls. You told me about the catch clap designer. I did? No, I heard something on the radio. About a show called The Royale? No, there was a show where they had to start importing people in to come laugh or clap. I have no idea what you're talking about. Was it Seinfeld, maybe? There was some sitcom. Really? Oh, it was it was the nanny. Originally they oh. filmed it without a live audience. And this is where you all say cool story, bro. <laughs> For some reason they had to they actually started paying people to come in and be a part of the live audience. But they didn't just pick a random selection of people off the street. They actually went through uh, like a portfolio of actors. And got like they they it was a it was a curated live audience. They mm-hmm. wanted a, a mix of different. I don't remember. I don't remember. Were they, and I were can they, provide you with no more information. I was going to say, what were they looking for other than they know things that are funny and will clap and or the uh, internet will just clap. a diverse. Okay, sure. So we're going to pause. We we started this last time. I think this is a good precedent. We can. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> We're gonna let when you... somebody's dug themselves into a Wikipedia web. No, when you can stop figuring out how somebody else has dug themselves into a Wikipedia web. So it's always interested me how, how you got from uh, Judah Washu? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how you got from there to working in Tanzania. It's just an interesting path. Wait, wait, wait. But didn't you go to a different school before U of C? Nope. I'm thinking of Andrew Langan. Never mind. Moving on. Another, so, and he went to U of C before. He went he, to U of C and then he went to Princeton. Was another distinguished guest. Wow. Right. It was. He, we should guest. definitely have him on. Be an excellent guest. He should be if he didn't live in New Jersey with he's his wife and child. He's nice. Whoa, whoa. He's nice. Look, I'm going to need you to stop downgrading members of the class of 2001 because no one is better than us. That's true. It's just us. That's true. Andrew also. Andrew and I had a bit of a history of following each other. Right, because you both went to WashU. Both went to Emsa, both went to WashU, both went to U Chicago. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then he left you. Approximately the same time. I know, and then he left you. I know. And you went to Princeton. I know. Makes me sad. Um, Where are we going with this? You went from WashU to U of C. We were talking about Matthew's life story. I went to WashU because, partly because, well, it was weird, but uh, you know, a lot of people want to go to college away from us. But I actually, part of why I wanted to go to Washington is because it was closer to home, and I had gone away for high school. Mm-hmm. But we're probably going to know you from you from really Greenfield, close to where which is not Greenville. <laughs> it wasn't but, close to where, to where Andrew's from. No, was, no, no, Andrew's way down south. Oh well, Andrew's from actually southern Illinois. Okay, and I'm from, from actually central Illinois. Okay, okay. But Matthew's farther south Illinois, than me when I say central Illinois. Like I'm also central yeah. Illinois. You're central Illinois. I'm, I'm South Central. I'm, I'm Central. I'm, I'm Southwest. Central. I'm Western Central. Yeah. <laughs> Every in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> Every newspaper and sort of geographical whatever says serving North Central Illinois. So that's where it's where yeah. I'm from. Whereas I was Western Central Illinois, home of Western Illinois University. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. Greenfield is an hour north of St. Louis. Greenview. I won't slaughter. <laughs> Well, it seems we're about to lose a whole. I mean, the sad thing is, is that Lance seems to be the person best suited to like keep moving the conversation along. Yeah, he to, definitely sees folks. You know, I'm yeah. just really interested in hearing the story because I've heard bits and pieces of it just from from knowing Matthew. But I'm just always curious. No, and it makes sense since I, you I, are I a storytelling you. business. Well, well, no, that's so this somebody, thing, I'm not mad about. It. A high school that I know has done. Um, anthropological work in Tanzania, which is something I know, that right? I and pull, he's fluent in Swahili. I pulled that out of parties, so I just want you to know how much you mean to me personally. <laughs> Wait, did you find out how to say I'm naked in Swahili? Mimi ni uchi. Mimi ni uchi? I already knew how to say that. Well, I don't think you ever told me. Let's see if I have that file on my computer. <laughs> Let's just back everybody at home up. Uh, Katrina has a long list of languages in which she can say I'm naked. Right. How did you pick that phrase? Versus, are you single? (laughs) (laughs) Where's where's the bathroom or do you serve beer? Yeah. Do you drink beer? I don't drink beer. 
Um, so it goes back to my first high school. We were in marching band. This was my freshman year of high school. The story could go one of two ways. <laughs> we were in marching band, and for some reason, the juniors just started yelling out, I'm naked. We were not naked. No one was naked. And yet it became this catchphrase that I, of course, not understanding where it came from. Probably no one understands where it came from. But then I decided to claim it as my own. And then when I went to France, my sophomore sophomore year at IMSA uh, was in Paris and yelled, I'm naked. But because we were in Paris with my French class, I had to say it in French which is how I learned how to say je suis nu. Uh, je, je suis nu. Je suis nu. And then, you know, why not learn how to say it in multiple language? Like Hindi. Or like German. Ich bin nacht. Or Italian. Sono de nuda. Also, I should point out that all, right, all of these... How do you say it in Swahili? That is not fair. And I would like to point out that all of these are feminine. Like, I am a woman, so I learned how to say I'm naked for a woman. I can say, Andrew taught me Japanese. For the record, all four people are fully clothed at this table. I mean, I'm not wearing shoes. None of us are wearing shoes. Steve doesn't let us wear shoes in the apartment. If your imagination went somewhere when they announced me as being a great beard, you know. Uh, anyway, we're going to move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that so, was for Lance's wife. Mimi ni uchi. Mimi ni uchi. Wait, have you... Okay, M-I-M-I I was looking is the first that up. Word. I was looking that up. M-I-M-I is the first word. M-I... Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. President Beeb said it. Every guest that comes on has to teach us how to say I am naked in a foreign language. Well, but in a language that I don't already have. I mean, that's the language? kicker. Herding language? What kind of language is it? Or it's like binary or something. If clothes equals yes... <laughs> then, then close off close equals mm-hmm. naked and mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm I appear to be missing that file that I had through high school and now appear to have lost I'll email you <sighs> it's fine I just used to also have it in you know tie and tukorog and because I went on a cruise and like all of the crew members were from other countries. So I was like, how do you say I'm naked? And they were like, why are you talking to me? You straight American <laughs> woman. They're like, we just wanted to bring you towels. And I was like, tell me. If you couldn't start again, I mean, I'm sure mostly from memory. Well, the, the Asian ones are a little hard. The, the romance language ones are easier to remember. Sure. And then, you know, there's Polish. Yes, them Goa. Yagoli, Russian. Mimi Uji. Mimi ni uchi. Mimi ni uchi. Like Hindi. Me nungi ku. Just like Hindi. Mimi ni uchi. <laughs> I'm sure those languages have nothing whatsoever in common. Mm, there's some borrowed words. Okay. Yeah. Wait, do, but they have to like, to like, intersect, they have to like go wrong. over some mountains. No, you they don't. You can't see it, but Katrina's gesturing over the Caucasus Mountains. Oh, that's really far north. All they have to do is go across the Indian Ocean. It is a trade Which they've been Which doing for like, a very long time. I, I mean, I don't know. To me, I'd rather go over some mountains than, like, cross an ocean. Mm. Can you see India from Africa? Most people have a disagreed no. with you history. Most people have said, you Look, know what? sir. You know what? Hannibal. Oceans. Took some elephants. And America and is stable to this day. Wait, for Hannibal? Or? Amerigo Ves- No, we're, all, we're named after Amerigo Vespucci. Yeah, we're very thankful that a bunch of people decided, you know, maybe we don't want to walk all the way to the Orient. Maybe we should just find a way to sail there instead. And America kind of got in the way. No, but they were already sailing there because they would go around Africa. But they wanted to find a different way because the Cape Horn was dangerous or something. Because there was a bunch of land in the way, so they were trying to find... That all happened right about the same time. Who was the... So there's Marco Polo. Right. Who was the other guy that circumnavigated? Marco Polo did not circumnavigate. He died. Who was the other no, guy that tried? Magellan. Magellan. Was his first name Francis? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, Pause. Look up Magellan's first name. So his first name was Madge. And then... Well, uh, that's, what? Uh, sir... It, it no, Sir Madge. Francis Bacon. You say it's a noun? What? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Same as Pause. Look it up. 
By now you get back to us. And you know that it is Ferdinand. Ferdinand! I knew it started with an M. He actually did. Ferdinand Magellan. He didn't? He died. So who did circumnavigate? His crew. Oh. (laughs) Well, how come we don't remember them? Because they were just the crew. There, there is a fun. I I should know more about this, but I don't. It's been a long time. But there is actually a bit of a mystery, unless it's been solved since uh, 2005. You're gonna start talking about Amelia Earhart? No. Oh. There is a mystery about how the New World monkeys got to the New World. You mean the ones in South America? Yeah, the monkeys that live in. Because we don't have monkeys in North America. Well, if you if you count Mexico, of course, going to the White House. We have monkeys in vote. Mexico. Uh, oh, no, you deserve that. No, I heard it. I heard it. Say? I said we have one in the White Wait, but I got <laughs> the. We have monkeys <laughs> in Mexico. Sorry. Yes. I didn't know that. I'm Where are they? Mexico, are they in the Yucatan? Certainly Peninsula? elsewhere in, in Central. We America. have them in Central America. Yeah, and if you include that in North America, which you should. We should we? Yeah, because it's is that where the tectonic plate breaks? Yeah. Oh. If it's on the isthmus or north, I'd say. Is it? Are you sure we didn't just make that up because we built a canal there? There was already a canal there before the canal. That's why they put the canal there. Right. But that doesn't mean that the tectonic plate splits at the Panama Canal. That would be rather convenient. That's why it's so small there. Everything's sort of moving. Wait. Are we saying that I thought there were two tectonic... You can't see this, but I'm making continents with my hands. So I thought tectonic plates were one on top of the other. You're saying they're side to side, and then that's why we have the isthmus. I'm not, no, I'm, no, I'm just saying that the isthmus and north is part of North America. Interesting. Do you think we did that because of culture or because of tectonic That's totally a political border. It's also like distinguishing Europe from Asia. I don't know. I feel like I was always taught in school, which given was a Like where would you draw a neat line between Europe and Asia? You can't. Uh, no, it's, it's Russia. Russia's Asia and everything else is not. Where in Russia? The border of Russia. All of Russia is in Asia. <laughs> really? Because then how would how would a geologist identify the border of Russia? With the the political border of Russia, I don't know. Like how how would a geologist identify the border of the Hungarian Empire if it doesn't exist anymore? Okay. That's my point. I think it's a it's a political division to put central to not put Central America as part of the border. Right, but see, this brings me to another thing that sticks in my craw, which is that people are like, Russia isn't part of Asia. And I'm like, have you looked at a map? Because it is. Because then I'm like, right, so Russians are Asians. And they're like, no, they're not. And I'm like, you don't get to say Russians aren't Asians just because... Well, then it gets complicated, too, because Russia, as um, a nationality, is not the same from Russia as an ethnicity. So you can be... Oh, you're referring you, to the Rus? You, yeah, you can be... Your nationality can be Russian, but you can be ethnically something else. There's a lot of people. Like you're like enormous. like I'm nationality and American, but ethnically I'm like German. Yes. Northern European. Perhaps I'm a mutt. I'm a Northern European mutt. Yes. Yeah. Which brings me to a nice segue that I wanted to talk about anyway, which is that I have been reading a Neil Stevenson book, which half of it is set in a town in Iowa, a small town that hosts Eastern Iowa University, which is, I feel like all of us, maybe it's just me. Maybe this only refers to me, but it, anyway, it's a lot about Iowa. And then it just made me feel like feel nostalgic for this Midwest that I don't know that I ever experienced. Cause they talk a lot about like the reticence of the people in the Midwest and how like some of these characters, they're like, they don't talk that much. And then other people come into town and they talk a lot. And like Midwesterners are like, whoa, you're imparting a lot of information, sir. You just yeah. needed to say it was a nice day. You didn't actually need to tell me your feelings. And I feel like I did not actually live in this concept of the Midwest. Maybe because I'm me and just tell everyone my feelings. That seems more to say. But, like, does anyone else miss this, like, rural Midwest nostalgia that I don't think Myth it right? or understand it? Or think it's real? All three. Uh, I think it is real. I don't really associate that. Like, what you've described I would not think of as stereotypically Midwestern. Really? I could think of a couple. No, I could think of, like, uh, like, of the West, maybe. You know, with uh. your stoic cowboy. Or in the south with your don't reveal too much. Yeah. Kind of thing. 
But that's all dealing with stereotypes. Well, what else are we dealing with? But I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the small town, so. Yeah. But I, I certainly didn't think that people were silent. I didn't either. Then or now. Well, it's, they talk about that passive aggressiveness of Midwesterners. Or I don't know, maybe my brother and I just like linking to these articles that talk about the passive aggressiveness of Midwesterners. <laughs> Where it's like, you want to talk about mothers guilting you, Midwestern moms can do it in two words. I usually get it with What are the book. two words? Or there was this article I read where the story was like, a, someone came home to visit their parents and then they went out with their friends and like, a Jewish mother would probably be like, oh no, it's again, full stereotypes. Jewish mother would be like, oh, so you're just going to leave me here? That's fine, whatever. Whereas like a Midwestern mom is like, you're leaving? Two words. Accomplishes everything. Okay. And then you just kind of have to understand. Only if you decide not to go out. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Then you're going to get some different. And then you get the grief of like, no, why haven't you seen your friend? I don't know. <clears throat> Now I, I have to admit, though, Catholic awful. guilt, this Catholic is not a Midwestern guilt. thing, but Catholic guilt is actually not something that I really understood really? growing up in my hometown. Really? Yeah. I feel like I... In my family, on both sides, really, but also even through the through the parish, it just wasn't a... I, did, I honestly did not understand what this... I'd heard Catholic guilt, but I didn't understand it until when I was in undergrad, and I was in an English composition class, and we read an autobiography written by a woman who grew up, I think, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about her experiences in Catholic schools that I actually understood what Catholic guilt was. And I was like, that's not, that's not all over the place. I could really? not, there was a, it was a version of Catholic, of Catholicism that I could not empathize with. Was it smaller or big city? Or was it largely? I think it was or? in, I think it was in Baltimore or somewhere okay. near there. It wasn't rural. No, that's interesting because I definitely experienced Catholic guilt and I also <laughs> grew up in a small town. In central Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Family, family, case by case basis. Maybe. Do you have Catholic guilt? I just know guilt. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lance, as the Protestant Meanwhile, in the group. Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have work ethic? That's what we should be asking you. Um, well, we're all Midwestern. We're still dealing we're still, I feel like yeah. we're all interested. We're still dealing stereotypes. Midwestern interested. <laughs> I feel like we all have a work ethic. Growing up, there was definitely, definitely yeah, a, I do work. an undercurrent of um, if you're not, you know, if you don't, if you don't work, you won't eat. Or that was definitely kind of undercurrent of um, you know your work ethic kind of defines who you're, who you are, and your wealth is a direct correlation with your work ethic. There was that sort of. It was never. Explicitly stated, but there was definitely that kind of not guilt, but that sort of undercurrent of of these things really define define who you are. So when in college I read the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, then all of a sudden a bunch of things kind of clicked for me about oh, this is why they're right? called this the was, Methodists. Exactly, it was never stated, but it was sort of this undercurrent in in yeah. theology combining with political ideas. So yeah. Well, and that reminds me of something. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of a uh, a long, and I thought interesting, exchange on the IMSA Facebook page the other day. Oh, I probably missed it. What was it? It was about um, people's experiences with uh, coursework beyond math and science. Oh, right. I think I know. I think I did read this string because I feel like we were all commenting about that rural STEM survey. That came up. Or is this a different string? Further, no, I think that did come up on. In that conversation. Where we were all like, but it was a a whole bunch of humanities majors commenting on how we felt like our humanities education was really what set IMSA apart. Not just humanities majors. I think a lot of people who ended up actually studying STEM were saying the same thing, was that it was was the humanities courses that help people think. And that's why I loved, for example, like science revolution, ideology, and the arts in your ear. Because it was such a good... Oh, you guys got to take three of them. It was a history of... History and philosophy of science. Right. I wanted to take that, but I wanted to be in utopia, anti-utopia more. How was that? I mean, it was really good. Part of our problem was Mr. Guest died halfway through the school year. So then Dr. Clark took over, which I am not opposed to Dr. Clark, but we started watching more dystopian films instead of reading utopian and dystopian Mm. books. It's like there was a very... Did it come out over the course of that course? 
What? <laughs> like how utopian societies are very dystopian as soon as you scratch the surface? No, cause, well, most of the utopias we read are actually the super really boring ones, like Thomas More or Looking mm. Backward by Edward Bellamy, where like a utopia, there's just, they're really boring books because there's there's nothing wrong with they're them. Really there's good. no conflict. Right. Everything They describe there's the perfect no society. There's right. no story to have. Where, have so much drama. Whereas like the dystopias, it's like, like the two classic ones, right? Brave New World, 1984. Mm. I love Brave New World. Both of them can be warnings. I feel like both of them are warnings for a modern society, right? But I feel like Brave New World is the more successful one in terms of like, if you want to have a society where there's no conflict, you brainwash everybody and then you give them something to do and then you keep them distracted. Mm -hmm. Whereas like 1984, they sort of tried to do that, but ultimately there was conflict within the society because they hadn't been completely... Here's an anthropological question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think in Brave New World there ends up being the space outside of society? The reservation. The reservation. Oh, I figured it was a political thing where like Native Americans were like, this is our land and you can't make us conform to your white and European. Uh, do you think that's that? Do you think it's just a comment on settler colonialism? No, that's I what think, I figured. I, I think the this is society of uh, a brave new world requires concentrated masses of people, and so as a result, just naturally, there are going to be land masses that are uh, unpopulated. And so why put people there who you're not going to incorporate into this? I didn't feel like the I, I the for, for lack of a better word, what they're referred to in the book as the savages. Well, right, right. Um, I feel like that very clearly to me was a Native American population, which was like they rejected this new civilization because they wanted to maintain their roots, and it was their land anyway. So politically, when this civilization right, was they set didn't up... Incorporate it. But isn't the character that they send there actually just a regular person at the beginning of the story? Oh, are like, you... Doesn't that a regular memory, yes. Yeah, so it actually... Are, wait, are you talking about the savage who then come, grows up Forgive me for using the word savage, but that's what's in the book. He grows up as a savage and then goes back and to civilization. Back. And he's like, he's the outsider. And everyone's like, oh my God, it's so nice to meet you. What's it like? Isn't our civilization so much better? And he's like, no, this is appalling. And then he kills himself. Yeah. Uh, for entertainment, but what they view as entertainment. No, no. He grows up in the society. And then he goes and he's at uh, and he grows up in the outsider society, the one that's still... No, he grows up... Mm -mm. Mm -mm. To Wikipedia! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I've read this book multiple times. Anyway, all, the, all that to say, I just found it... I just found that... And I should go back and reread it with several years of experience in, under my belt. But I even when I read it the first time, I thought that was kind of strange that that was... See, I've never picked up on that. What I found was the interesting part. Why is that a foil to society? I don't think, but it's not presented as a foil to society. I think it really just exists so that Aldous Huxley could have this character that is supposed to represent the current man. Like us, he's supposed to represent the reader and what happens when that reader tries to exist in this mm -hmm. perfect civilization. But because we have values that I've this civilization has gotten rid of because they're not useful for controlling the population, like love for an individual person, like family, mm -hmm. you know, the like all of those things, putting the individual before the civilization, then that ultimately drives him mad. What I find really interesting is the, the alphas that remember there's that one alpha who's super, super smart. And he starts to figure out that this civilization is maybe not the best thing to ever happen. And he's not going to be happy there. And the head leader is like, you know what? You are absolutely right. But you can't stay here and proclaim those things because it will tear this civilization to pieces. So what you can do is go live in the Arctic and think your philosophy all by yourself. And I think it's really interesting that he, the alpha, chooses a life of philosophical discovery but does not tear. Which also reminds me of your comment earlier about anthropology, because it, I think you are correct 
when when you're at a party and you say, well, what do you do? And you say anthropology or especially archaeology, then if people tend to be impressed, but also if they actually know what those are, rather than a lot of times, you know, because you always get that. Oh my God, I love dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> I never get that. <laughs> but if they know what you do. Um, really? They go for dinosaurs instead of Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones or dinosaurs. Yeah. Those are the two things. <laughs> but it is very interesting to me because I think that anthropologists do have lots of interesting things to say. But I often wonder, does broader society actually want to hear what we have to say? Because much of what we have to say, I think right now, at least in this stage of the discipline, is uh, questioning certain things in broader dominant society. In fact, I was very surprised when you're not to get political... But when... We had a whole feminist rant last oh. okay. It was about pockets! Right. Which is a valid feminist critique, let's be honest. Sometimes I'm... Maybe I shouldn't say this, but sometimes I actually wish that my pants didn't have pockets, because then I wouldn't put things in them. Here's the problem. You can I wear women's pants. Women's <laughs> like, I can wear men's pants with those pockets, but it's great. They're not shaped in the body, but whatever. You actually can't wear women's pants, because they don't give you room for your testicles. Yeah, the inseam trunk. But in any case, that's why I wear a coat and all my stuff just goes in the jacket, which is what started the entire. Point <laughs> <laughs> being, women don't get coat pockets. This is what cats carry bags. Or if they do, it, it's unsightly bulges. Yeah, and I look like I have tumors right here on my stomach. Anthropological. No, I was very surprised. So over the last couple of years, there have been various efforts to sort of rein in what is seen as uh, uh, wasteful spending by the NSF. But what really Wait, surprised me... The National me, Science Foundation? The National Science Foundation, yes. Um, well, two things. The thing that really surprised me was that uh, it was political science that came under scrutiny first. Really? And so then there were all these... There were these uh, stipulations that NSF money could only go to uh, researchers and projects that were furthering US, US, uh, US foreign policy Scottish agenda. And so... Uh, I think I saw something about that, that it was basically for a foreign policy military agenda. I mean, technologies... There had to be an useful. argument that it was doing something to right. further US interests beyond knowledge production right? in general. And I was actually really surprised that it was something like political science that, that came in for that before various social sciences, but especially anthropology, given that so much of anthropology, even archaeology, like across the subfields, is, I mean, it's based on questioning, like understanding how norms of society become sort of background, so that they seem natural, and try to denaturalize those things and understand where they emerge from. And so the field sort of inherently has a sort of a, it approaches society from a critical not just like Americans any society from a critical perspective it's like how do people structure themselves and why and where does that come from and uh, what might it be hiding in a sort of 1984 style mm -hmm. um, and how how is it perpetuated it didn't take long now anthropology is sort of covered or getting some heat why political, that was science, why political science first do you think I don't know I really don't know why political science first. It is interesting to me that when you look at some of the some of the uh, Congress members who have lists of what they consider to be wasteful spending, it's actually archaeology. When you when you're looking within anthropology, it tends to be archaeological studies, including a study that I helped on uh, that I contributed to was on the list of, of most wasteful NSF expenditures. Top ten or top five. Uh, no, it was just, it, they weren't uh, rank orders. They might have been alphabetical. Just a general hit list. Of yeah, general hit list. Things we hate in general. Hit list of, of wasteful research. It was a project I helped on in Tanzania a few years ago. Yeah. Because that's interesting. I mean, there's been a big push, especially the past two years, I mean, against professional politicians, people that are, you know, career, career politicians, politics as usual, the elite, the establishment, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's, is that why people are so kind of wary of political science and its study? I mean, that's, that's so interesting that people who are involved in politics would be saying political science doesn't need to be studied, researched. 
I don't know, maybe it has to do with when they were looking at what political scientists are actually studying, but they were like, but this isn't, you know, maybe their, their idea of what the field is about compared to what people in the field actually do mm, didn't mm-hmm. map onto each other. I don't know. What's that, what's that big difference? Because I think of political science and I think of it as sort of a branch of history and I'm sure I'm not, not entirely right. No, I, I would actually say, I was about to say, oh, really? I mean, a lot of political scientists do historical, historical? Stuff, so okay. I don't understand the institutional um, trajectories behind different things that have happened in the world. So I don't know. I, and isn't it the? I would imagine that it is a pre. It's usually the course you would take, or you would major in that before you go to law school. It's like the pre-law. Might be something they were familiar with. Yeah, most people in Congress are lawyers. I don't know. Are most people in Congress lawyers? I'm sure they are. I believe lawyers yeah. are. Well, certainly all of their aides are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I would imagine a lot of their aides are. Given most of this is based off of a West Wing episode, <laughs> where <laughs> Josh says all of us are lawyers, and then Leo tells him to take Sam with him, who is a practicing lawyer, as opposed to a practicing just attorney, as opposed to someone who just went to law school. It's always amazing that we're in our Congress is full of lawyers, which makes sense to write the laws. But I mean, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, is a nuclear chemist, I think, or like that. It's a very, very interesting right. career that is not necessarily political. That's why we should me. to Germany. So anyway, take... I'm Can super interested. Take take us through IMSA and then undergrad and how'd you end up in, in Africa? I actually did my first anthropological research at IMSA. Uh, I did two research projects there. The first was and I mentioned Wait, was this a mentorship? I had a mentorship, and then also I did a an inquiry project during my sophomore year. Um, so SRIA, Science Revolution Ideology and the Arts, which was the perspectives curriculum, I actually started out as a sophomore and and then into my junior year with integrated science. Oh so I was in a different track. Right. Yeah, and then oh, wait, I you were integrated. Mm-hmm. And then I switched I'm... over to perspective senior year. Okay, so you're out of numbers. I was core. Yeah, I was integrated. Um, you were integrated as well? Oh, really? Yeah, but you were better at math than me. Yeah. So you, we wouldn't have interacted. I was in the remedial. <laughs> I the other. These are numbers. <laughs> it's okay. I went to Excel with you where they were like, look, your school didn't teach you how to factor, <laughs> and you can't go to IMSA until you learn how to factor. Come on up. <laughs> Whereas my education eventually led to, what are numbers? <laughs> <laughs> They're a construct. Which is a super interesting question, the philosophy of mathematics, but we'll have to, we'll delve into that another time. So, and during, I have to study again, I no longer really do. <laughs> all my stuff is. During integrated, uh, during the second semester, we had to do inquiry projects. It was basically just a, a very short term independent research project to get it used to to designing and carrying out a project. And I ended up, I was really interested at the time in uh, like the forensic shows and things like that mm. on TV. And so I knew that you could tell things from the skeleton, but they on those shows, they didn't actually tell you what you could tell from or how you did it. And so I set up a project where I wanted, I wanted to know. And what I ended up doing, so I wanted to look at, um, at damage pattern to bone. And so I uh, was like, where do I get some bones? <laughs> and having grown up in a small town, I called my uncle. Didn't you grow up on a farm? No. Oh. My mom grew up on a farm. And I took cows from the farm to the fair for 4-H. Didn't you mm. also make butter? I mean, you guys had award-winning tomatoes. No, I was the Illinois State Champion vegetable displayer. <laughs> I knew it was something. The age of 12. <laughs> that may be a story for another day. We have, we have royalty in our midst. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it is a world that is proud, but hidden. <laughs> I believe this. And uh, I would be happy to to uh, to accompany you into it this summer. We'd have to do a county and state fair circuit, but we could do it. <laughs> oh my God, we could take the podcast on the 
Side note, side note, during my vegetable displaying days, I showed such promise that one of the vegetable judges actually started taking me with her to go to learn how to judge vegetables at neighboring fairs. And we became really good friends, the two of us. Really? Mm-hmm. Is this something you would ever do again? I would love to become a judge. vegetable judge again. Awesome. So I called my uncle, and as it turns out, a cow had recently died on the farm. And so, and it had been dead long enough that the, the flesh wasn't there anymore. And so he collected the bones for me, and then I took them to IMSA and came up, found various implements of destruction around campus, and then damaged the bones and then tried to, to see if you could figure out... Uh, if marks on the bone would indicate a particular weapon had been used. And so then... Sounds like amazing stress relief. Oh, yeah, it's great. And then during my junior year, I got a mentorship at Loyola, and I was working with Ann Grauer, who's a professor at Loyola, and who is hilarious and great and brilliant. And she taught me how to do skeletal analysis, which is where you take a skeleton and you figure out if it's male or female, was likely male or female, and how old the individual was when they died, and any, you determine if they had any kinds of diseases during life and things like that. And these were two skeletons that had been uncovered during construction on Main Street in Downers Grove the previous spring. And so she knew that I was going to be coming to do a mentorship, and so she had already done the analysis and um, got permission to keep them a little bit longer before they got reburied so that she could use them to teach me how to do skeletal analysis. And so that's what I spent the course of the year doing, learning how to do that and sitting on some of her classes and things like that. And side note, is that the person uh, whose ugly thing collection you supplemented? Yes! I remember I remember yeah. this. Yeah. I bought this really awful... She had a rule that anybody that worked in her lab had to bring something ugly to contribute to the ugly thing collection. Uh, and preferably it would involve skeletons. And so when we were in Germany, I, I bought this, um, I think it was made out of like chalk or something. Something like that, yeah. That was painted. Of a, it was like a Grim Reaper with lot, holding lots of skeletons, under, or lots of skulls under his arms. The best was this. She had It was a, it was a skull that had um, a high collar and an Elvis hairdo. It was quite nice. <laughs> that one was really good. Um, so yeah, I did that. And so then I knew by that point that I wanted to study anthropology. And like I said earlier, I wanted to be closer to home. And as it turns out, WashU has a phenomenal, then and they still do have a phenomenal anthropology program. Um, and so I went in knowing that I wanted to study anthropology. And what's really cool is that they, at that time, they had everything except linguistics. And so I took a lot of, uh, I, I did take a lot of bioanthropology courses. That's where I learned about this mystery about how monkeys got to the new world. Because they have all of these uh, anatomical differences between monkeys and the whole world. So it's not, there's there's this question of how did they get there, but also why do they have these consistent anatomical differences between them and the old world? Very interesting. Uh, and they just evolved separately? Ye, sure, that's possible. But, but how and how did they get there? Yeah. Well, or, I mean, was like, it, or were they the only... Or were they the only surviving lineages of something that actually evolved in the old world? And right. They, went extinct after they got to... Well, aren't there multiple... There have to be multiple examples of, like, two animals that look like they're related but just happen to evolve in the same way yeah. that they're not actually related. Yeah. Some fancy words. So I took a lot of bioanthropology. I took a lot of archaeology courses. I took a lot of cultural anthropology courses. And I actually uh, got mainly interested in cultural anthropology by that point. Uh, and so by the time I finished, I thought I was going to do cultural anthropology. But right after college, I was uh, fortunate enough to get a Fulbright to Tanzania. And I had spent a semester in Tanzania because I always thought East Africa was cool because that's where it seems like humans evolved. And so I was really fascinated in the area and had gone and had an internship with the African Wildlife Foundation. And so I wanted to go back. And one of my professors helped me put together a Fulbright application. And I ended up working in central Tanzania doing this project on leafy vegetables. I remember the leafy vegetables. Weedy greens. Did did Anitra go with you? Was that that trip where Anitra? No, that was in two, that was right after high school. Oh, okay. That was a volunteer trip to Kenya. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was my first time to the Um And the leafy vegetable project was really awesome. And I had the reason I picked the project is because the group where I was doing the research, all this, all the material I'd read suggested that they were hunter gatherers until the recent past, and that things like leafy vegetables were evidence of their recent hunting and gathering past, that they were still continuing to use a lot of wild resources. So I went and did the project, and I, it's too much detail to go into right now, but that I, I discovered that uh, that probably wasn't the case. And um, it, that project was really neat because what I, what I found out is, well, first of all, they use like 75 different species of leafy vegetables. Like, could you imagine going into the grocery store and having 75 different kinds of kale? I can think of like three kinds of kale. I can. I don't eat kale. Turns out I don't like kale. It's you gotta cook it right. Well, I've had a good kale salad. My friend, I've had one good kale salad, and I've tried to make kale chips. How do you? Turns out I don't like kale. Do you like bitter flavors? Nope. So you I know, like endive, like... radicchio. There's a wonderful world of leafy vegetables out there, Katrina. <laughs> I was about to say, these are words, and I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, anyway, you don't I eat those things either? eat a lot of sugar. I'm with you there. My healthy sugar is fruit. Do you like bitter things? Have you heard those words? Uh, I have heard those words. I've heard those words. I was hoping you'd say the word arugula. I'm not fiber shaming here. Right <laughs> Look, sir, that mango has a lot of fiber in it. You're going to feel it tomorrow. Or in like 12 hours. Well, That's great. I do. Uh, I do. It would be I tomorrow in 12 hours. Thanks. Thanks for that. For anyone like who's flavors. listening to this, I, it might not be tomorrow in 12 hours, depending on when you're can be bitter and spicy. And bitter. I almost exclusively drink uh, seltzer water. Mm. Because I do something about Is there a arugula in seltzer water? There can be. It tastes bitter to you? It tastes bitter. Seltzer water tastes I don't like seltzer bitter? water because it's too bitter. And I just I just enjoy that. When I drink flat water, still water, whatever you want to call it, it just tastes... Do you know what I sometimes do with seltzer water? I put bitters in it. And then I drink it, even if there's no. Booze. Is bitters alcoholic? No. Yes. yes. Well, there are cocktail yes. bitters. Yeah. Yeah, but those okay. do have alcohol. In them, right. Usually. But not enough that you'd you'd have to. I mean, you you, you would to, have to drink too much bitters. Yeah, you could. <laughs> if right. you like bitters, you couldn't stand that. Guys, I have to be super lame and end this because I have to go to a birthday party. Yay! Birthday party. Lame ending podcast. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I mean, and then after I did the leafy vegetable project, then I went. And did my master's, and I realized that. Um, and that were, was at U of C. Master's at University of Chicago, yeah. yeah. And there were that project was really fascinating. But when I thought about it, I realized that um, there were a lot of historical questions about the region that had were now on the table. And so, since I already had a training in archaeology, I I decided when I did the PhD that instead of continuing to do ethnographic work there, which I think I might do further down the road, but that for the PhD. I would do archaeology to try to explore some of those historical questions. And so my PhD project, which is what I was doing, and that was one of your first questions, was I was trying to gather data. Um, the it, it seems like food production, so like domestic animals and domestic crops entered that area sometime between two and 3,000 years ago. And so what I'm trying to put together uh, data to understand um, is when food production entered the area, the kinds of uh, changes it had on society and the um, impacts that it had on the environment and how we can use archaeology to understand that. Well, Matthew's very smart. I just talk a good talk. <laughs> He's doing very important things. We should have him back to talk more about those very important things. Or not. I mean, if he wants to talk about other things, we also like to listen we could to also, talk well, about this other things. Is it, is Matthew it, are guests allowed? Like, if, you, if you're interviewing somebody else, can I just sit in the corner and not say anything? Well, you could just, maybe, uh, it'd be like, maybe what might sense. happen is that you end up being one of the hosts. It'd be a, it'd be a twist on, you could be, on a sidekick. We could just add you as a host. Yeah, I could be like a, a sub-host. Yeah. As you pointed out, you talk a good talk. You do. Yeah. Because this is a podcast with no rules. I've never been accused just make that up. of not having something to say. That's true. I've often lifted people with a book. So we haven't figured out how to end the podcast yet. So if you have any brilliant ideas, I am still recording. Yeah, but we don't assign homework. That's important. <laughs> but you did once to ourselves. Well, oh, we the, can have homework. Oh, they're not supposed to. Homework. I'm There's just, a few things we're supposed to look up on Wikipedia. Yeah, that was 
is kind of in, in preparation should we do homework for our audience. Well, if anyone can find a picture of Matthew Nisley winning the vegetable display competition. I'm sure it's out there. I do have the trophy and the ribbon. I can bring it. Do you? So I'm not here, but you home, could I just can send us a photo. Yeah, send a photo. Okay. And then when I finally get the website up and running, I will post it on mm-hmm. said website. Somebody asked me the other day, she used a word that I've never heard before, but I looked it up and it is a word. The topic of 4-H came up and I said, I was in 4-H. <laughs> and I actually took, and then she finished my sentence. She goes, oh my gosh, did you take beeves? B-E- B-E-E-V-E-S, which I did not know was a word, but it is. It's the plural for beef. Oh. What? Beeves. I actually never took beeves. I mean, over the years I took beeves, but each year I just took a beef. One, did you take a cow or a beef? I took a steer. You took a steer. Yeah. But it was alive. When you took yes. it. My, my mind is kind of blown that... I always thought you wanted two, tomatoes. Two beefs are actually beefs. Beefs. Do you need multiple beefs? Who doesn't need multiple beefs? In looking this up, did you find out if uh, beefs and beefs were acceptable? Uh, that I don't know. We'd have to... Clearly, beefs well, is... We'd have to have homework, but apparently that's not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> no homework for the audience. <laughs> well, the pilot, we did pause quite a bit and let people... Google things that we talked about. Oh yeah, that came yeah. up. I kind of like that idea. Sort of a, a brief break, and uh, I'm like, okay, we we know what we're talking about now. Pause. We'll let you Google that at home, and then our thumbs for a minute, and eight mangoes, and yeah, they came right back into. I mean, it. yeah, I'm not going to, you know, tell you how to do it, but saying goodbye is a ritual, and anthropologists do have a lot to say about rituals. But can you recommend an excellent goodbye ritual? To Dan. So long. I can't do anything. Hey, who? I'll just scream. I'm naked in multiple languages. Mimi Niuchi. Hanu Tata. As I possibly can. Naked? I don't have a foreign language to say. You took French and German. Je parle un peu de français, mais ne. Je suis nu. Je suis nu. Yeah. I don't know how to say that for real. It's je suis nu. Yeah. Again. One of us learned the feminine version of this. It's word. exactly the same. You take an E off the end. And I also don't know how to say it in German. Ich bin Nacht. You have to be careful because night is H and Nacht is a K sound. So you can't say, say you can't say I am nice Nacht. Ich bin Nacht. Nacht. Ich bin Nacht. Great. Well, there we go. All right. Uh, so all four all right. of us. No, I was take a language and we all say it. You couldn't see it, but Matthew. Nathan, who? And with that, it's been